Okay, the main announcements to remind everybody is on the picnic at October 13th, so that, that will, uh, um, we just have to pray that it'll be dry and we'll have a great time. And then on Sunday, said this coming, yeah, this coming Sunday at 6 p.m., we're hosting an Act for America uh, Houston event, and Elizabeth Sabatich Wolf is speaking, and I still haven't heard. Bryce, have you heard if we can, or we can, we can live stream? Okay, so we will live stream it, and <clears throat> there will also be a recording of it. So uh, if you can't make it, I'd encourage you to try to get the recording. Uh, she's quite informative, quite interesting, and I'm sure you will, you will enjoy her. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we open up God's word this evening, we need to be spiritually prepared to study the word, to concentrate, to focus, and to realize that just as every moment of our life should be lived as a worship of God, we need, we, it can only be worship if we are walking by the Spirit. So when we sin, we're no longer in fellowship, and we need to confess sin and so that we can resume that spiritual walk. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can all make sure we're spiritually prepared, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful we have this time to come together to focus upon you, to focus upon your word, to be reminded of how great you are, of your uh, immense power, infinite power, power beyond anything we can ever imagine that has made accessible to us because we are in Christ and because your grace is sufficient, your word is sufficient, and Christ's death is sufficient. And because of the sufficiency of these things, we know that we are to walk in tremendous faith and dependence upon you, radically depending upon you for everything in life, because we know that only in doing so do you get the glory and the honor uh, for what we have done by means of the Spirit. Now, Father, we pray that as we continue our study in the sufficiency of Scripture, tonight that you would help us to understand these things and, and to see how they relate to our own lives and where we often fall short in being dependent upon that sufficient, the sufficiency of Scripture and the sufficiency of your grace. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, now last time we didn't have, last week we did not have a class because it was a little wet. And many people were not able to get around. 
uh, even tonight I, I was coming over here, one of the traffic lights was blinking, and I did have occasion to come up here to get something right at 7.30 last week, and the traffic lights on Gessner and traffic lights coming up on Westview were all blinking, and but it, everybody was glad to be home, so there were not any cars on the road, thankfully, or there would have been uh, would have been a problem. But anyway, we're continuing our study in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3, 4, and 5 on the sufficiency of Scripture. We have a new graphic for this series. It's up on the screen emphasizing the fact that the, this epistle was written to warn against false teachers. So I hope everyone has spotted the fact that that is not a regular sheep up there. Okay, just a reminder. Run through these verses real quick. Second Peter 1.3, Since his divine power, God's omnipotence, has given to us most things. Now, all things. That's a very important word there. All things that pertain to life, and it's usually translated life and godliness. I translate it related to our spiritual life. That is uh, living out our life in relation to uh, the physical needs necessary to fulfill the spiritual life mission. And then the second word, which is eusebeia, emphasizes that relationship with God. It is translated godliness, which is an old English way of saying God-likeness, and that we are being conformed to the image of Christ, so we are to be God-like in that sense. Not in the sense of the silly health and wealth people who think that we're all little gods and teach that, but that in our character, we are to reflect the character of Christ. That's summarized in one sense in Galatians uh, 5, uh, 22, and following on the fruit of the Spirit. And that this comes not through some sort of mystical experience, not through some sort of cathartic event in our life, but through the knowledge that is a full, complete, more intimate knowledge that is built line upon line, precept upon precept, uh, of him, and that comes through his word, as we'll see in the next verse, him who called us by glory and virtue, by which, that is, by his glory and virtue, which summarizes his character, the essence of God, including his omnipotence, by which we have been, has been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. There's the word. And so the sufficiency of God's grace in giving us uh, everything is matched to the sufficiency of the Scripture in telling us, giving us that knowledge that we need in order to uh, understand how to uh, access his power and his grace. Precious promises that through these, that is, these promises, the Word of God, you may be partakers, that is, learn to share or participate in terms of intimate fellowship with the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. That comes because we are born again. We're no longer slaves of the sin nature unless we make ourselves go back into that slavery. And that, that we, that's the way to handle sin in the life. That's why I spent some time a few lessons back talking about the fact that so many of the things that we classify as emotional problems or diseases or um, something of that nature 
instead of sins. The Bible classifies them as sin. They are driven by lust, and therefore the solution isn't through psychotherapy. The solution isn't through uh, sociology. The solution is through the Word of God and learning to walk by the Spirit. So this is the focal point, and so we started talking about what the Bible teaches about the sufficiency of Scripture. And I've talked about this, and I had a number of points, but I want to go back to point seven. This is not always easy for people to remember. I know because I had to rethink this several times back in the 1980s as I'm dealing with how do I understand what is going on in these truth claims from Christian psychologists, because it, it was just everywhere, and it still is. It's, it's, it's more invasive than you can even imagine. And it is this idea that all truth is God's truth. The seventh point was that the Bible defines God's revelation of himself as truth, and I'm capitalizing that, uppercase, absolute, universal truth, true for everybody, every nation, every culture, every human being on the planet, whether they want to accept it or not, whether they like it or not, whether they've heard of it or not, it is still true. And so one of the most deceptive statements that comes along, because it sounds like people are accepting the truth of Scripture, is this phrase, all truth is God's truth. <clears throat> and so I pointed out that, that we have to parse this a little bit, sort of like back when Bill Clinton was parsing whatever the meaning of is, is. We have to take some time to understand what is really being communicated here. And so you have this statement that sounds good. Is it, if, if it's God's truth, isn't all truth God's truth? And that sounds good. But when you start taking it apart, that isn't really what they mean. And so they're comparing apples and oranges. The first truth is not the same as the second truth. And so <clears throat> we need to ask the question, is all truth, lowercase, God's truth, uppercase. See, they're using truth the first time to mean one kind of truth. And truth in the second statement is talking about a different level of truth, the universal absolute truth that is revealed by God in his word. And the first truth isn't that. The first truth is derived at a lower, lower, much lower level. And so this is a typical logical fallacy it's sort of like changing horses in midstream and nobody knows you did it. So a fallacy in logic, and it's always interesting. Pick up a book. Jason Lyle with um, Answers in Genesis has a short little book. What's the name of it, John? Discerning Truth. Discerning Truth. Great book. It's got in the appendix at the back, it's got a list of all the logical fallacies. And, and it, especially going into a political season, it would be helpful to be aware of what logical fallacies are because you will see a lot of examples of them just watching the morning news and, and, and the way that truth is twisted. So it's a good thing to learn about. And <clears throat> this particular fallacy is called, I mean, the technical term is equivocation, and it's the idea when, when you have the same word in two parts or three parts of a of a. Of a syllogism or proposition, but the meaning of that term subtly shifts 
in the midst of the logical construction. And so it is designed to, as a subterfuge to trick people, and it has tricked a lot of, a lot of people. So in this statement, the first statement that all truth, that is a statement about facts. That is observable facts. That is a result of uh, facts that we discern through the use of reason in rationalism, or it is discerned through the truth of observation through empiricism, or we think it's true because we've had an intuitive hot flash and we just know it's true. God spoke to me in a dream last night, and I just know this is true. You can't convince me otherwise, and you can't because in mysticism they've rejected logic and they've rejected reason. And you can probably think of a lot of folks that you know today, don't confuse me with facts, don't try to give me logic or reason or data because I am convinced I'm right. So uh, this is observational truth. It's a lowercase level uh, of, of truth. And it's based on human interpretations of data, whether it's in the mind, which is rationalism or mysticism, or whether it's in terms of experiences that we've had through observation, through our senses. But that's the problem with that is we have a finite mind and we are placing our faith in our ability to correctly interpret whatever this data is. Now, what you've heard in the past from a lot of different sources is that somehow there is this competition between faith and reason. That's hogwash. That's another subterfuge. When you're taking a position such as Descartes or Plato took on rationalism, ultimately they have faith. Their faith is in the human mind to have the ability to discern the truth. And the same thing with empiricism, that they have faith in the human mind to correctly interpret the facts that they see, the observational facts. And, and see, that's both faith. So that's why faith isn't independent. Faith is evident in every, every one of these systems. I'll put my chart up here later. But it's evident in every one of those systems. It's faith in the human mind to properly d- interpret that which has been brought to it, either through pure rationalism or through the senses, through empiricism, or through some sort of intuitive insight into what is thought to be, to be truth. But the faith of the Christian is faith in the Word of God. It is in the truth of Scripture. Now, we may misinterpret it, but that doesn't mean that the statement that we are to believe the truth of God's Word is, is less true. God's Word is sufficient even though we may have misapplied it and we might have misunderstood it or misinterpreted it, the sufficiency of Scripture is still very much true. So the second category of truth, when we say all truth is God's truth, God's truth refers to that which is revealed by him through the Holy Spirit in the 66 books of the Bible, the Word, the word of God. So uh, the other problem we have with truth in our culture today is that everybody thinks that truth is just basically whatever works for you. If it works for you, if it makes you happy, if you feel good about what you're doing in life, then that's great. That's your truth, and I'm glad that works for you and you're a Muslim. 
somebody else has their truth, which is absolutely 180 degrees opposite, and they're into New Age mysticism and free love and, and all kinds of licentiousness and antinomianism, and that seems to make them happy in their life work, so that's their truth. Well, how can those two different truths even both be thought of as truth when they're 180 degrees opposite each other? But the Word of God claims to be the source of ultimate truth because it is from the Creator God of the universe who created everything so that everything that we're looking at and observing has to be thought of as that which was originally designed and made by God to be the way that it is. It didn't just happen to be that way. God created it that way. And so God can speak to every molecule, every subatomic particle in the universe with accuracy. So we have this problem of people having their own truth. Well, it's one or the other. It's either true or it's false. Truth, and you don't have this kind of relativism. In the Judges, the period of the Judges was one of the darkest periods of the Bible. It was just chaos at times. And they were constantly being threatened by foreign armies. There was no stability. There was no stability in terms of the finances. They were uh, being overrun by different, uh, different armies from different, uh, different groups, the Midianites, the Amalekites, the Ammonites, the Philistines. And God was punishing them, as he said in the law, showing that the law is absolute, but because they rejected the law and they were doing what was right in their eyes instead of what the law said, God had told them in the law that this is what was going to happen, and it just it was a demonstration of their own blindness, that they couldn't really see, see what was happening to them because they were so blinded by their own sinfulness and their own rebellion and arrogance, and arrogance is blinding. And if you don't believe that arrogance is blinding, Watch the news a little more often. I mean, we, we've had about six or seven cases just this last week of the most outstanding examples of self-imposed blindness uh, in, in politics and in things that were said at the United Nations. And I mean, it just boggles the mind. It's like somebody has talked about how one thing about common sense, it's not common anymore. I'm not sure anybody even remembers what it was. It's been so long since we've seen it. So in the period of the judges, what we saw was this statement that in those days there was no king, no authority in the land. And the king was God. So in theocracy, God's the king and he speaks truth. So when it says there's no king, there's a rejection of God, a rejection of divine revelation. And so they're trying to find truth from some other source other than God, and all you get is lies and deception when you do that. So everyone was doing whatever they thought was right, and it led to a just complete collapse of the, of the culture, the society, and almost the destruction of the nation. The Bible says the truth is found only in God. You cannot get to the universal absolute truth apart from the, the Word of God. You can't get there through observation. You can go out and discover a lot of facts, but it's understanding how all those facts work together that's important. You can bring two people in here. 
you can bring an evolutionist and a creationist in here, and you can set before them a tree, and they can both come up with a, a hundreds and hundreds of accurate observations about that tree. But if you ask the question, well, how did the tree get here? One is going to say, well, it's just a pure random act of chance. It just happened. And the other one is saying everything in that tree was designed perfectly by God. So they're not even talking about the same tree when you get right down to it because one of them sees something that's just a cosmic accident and the other one's looking at a tree that is there because God designed it perfectly down to the most uh, minutest part, particle of, of, the, of a cell. So we, that's what we're talking about is that absolute universal truth. And since God speaks truth, that is what gives us stability. And this is going back, I don't think I pointed this out the last time, the word for truth that we have in the, in the scripture is the word amuna. And it's related to the word amen, I believe. And it comes from, it's used one time in, in uh, Kings when it talks about Solomon laying the foundation for the pillars at the, at the, gate, the gate to the, to the temple. And it's that, that the bedrock, the foundation that is so stable that those posts will not be shaken. That's the idea of truth. It is unshakable reality. It is something you can depend on, and it will never cause you to be unstable. Now, we moved on to talk about what the Bible teaches about truth, and we looked at the Old Testament concept of truth, that God is truth, and we see this in terms of uh, various passages that talk about his essence, and it is applied to his uh, to his word. And so his word is viewed as truth. And that's seen in passages like Psalm 119, 142, 151, 160, where it talks about your law is truth, your commandments are truth, the entirety of your word is truth. And in Psalm 19:9, the judgments of the Lord are true. So we went through about six points the last time. I stopped just before we got to point seven. The sixth point was that Jesus clearly identifies the issue as a challenge between truth, uppercase truth, and the lie. And we went through John chapter 8 and his confrontation with the, with the Philistines there where he makes this statement that is so abused and it's used in so many educational settings and they have no idea where it came from and they have no idea what it actually means and they take it, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Well, it's not talking about any kind of truth that you can find at the University of Texas. Spoken like a true Aggie back there. Uh, It is talking about the absolute truth of God's word. You have to look at how Jesus uses the word truth as you go through the gospel, gospel of John. But he is challenged, of course, in that setting, as I pointed out, by the Pharisees. And he tells them, and he went to the Dale Carnegie School of how to win friends and influence influences people influence people, and he says, "You're of the father, of the devil." So that tells what he's saying in a Jewish mindset. This is all somewhat idiomatic. If somebody, if something is your father, then you're demonstrating the char- that the characteristics of that person. 
And so he says, you're of your father the devil. And they say the devil's a murderer, the devil's a liar. Uh, there's no truth in him, and he's the father of it. Well, what he just said was the Pharisees are murderers and they're liars and there's no truth in them. And they understood exactly what he was saying, and they are just fuming. And then when you get down to the end of that chapter, and he talks about, uh, and he talks about that he is he's the truth, and they pick up stones to stone him because they know that he's claiming to be God. When he talks about before Abraham was, I am, and they know that he's claiming to be eternal God, and so they try to stone him, and he slips away. So. The seventh point now, this is where we get into some new material. In the Bible, the claim is that God is truth, absolute truth, total truth, universal truth. Jesus is the truth, and the Bible is the truth. And it's interesting how you connect these things. Jesus said in John 14, 6, now where is he in John 14, 6? John 13 is in the upper room having Passover. John 14, somewhere in here, he leaves the upper room with his disciples, but he's teaching them about the fact that he's leaving and that he's going to send the Holy Spirit. And as he tells them that they're leaving, Philip says, well, Lord, where are you going? Or Peter said, Lord, where are you going? And that's when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. Now, that's towards the beginning of what all of this is called the upper room discourse. And that's towards the beginning. Then after he gets on the way to Gethsemane, he prays. And I don't think this is the prayer in Gethsemane, but this is his what is called his high priestly prayer. This is really the Lord's Prayer, not the prayer in Matthew, Matthew 6. Sanctify them by your truth, by means of your truth. What's your truth? Your word is truth. The Greek, therefore, word is logos. Well, Jesus is the logos. Jesus has just said, I am the truth. So the one, this is really interesting how John weaves these things together. He shows us in this whole section, which is all within the same hour, Jesus saying that he's the truth, I am the truth. But then he says, your word is truth, the logos is the truth. Well, he's the logos. So he's making these very sophisticated claims that not only is the written word the absolute truth, but also the living word is the absolute truth. And that's because, as Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 2.16, the living, um, the, the, that Christ's thinking, the mind of Christ, is the word of God. So it all connects. It's all ultimately talking about the fact that the word of God, the logos of God is the written word represents the thinking of Christ, and Christ is the living logos of God, and it is by Christ, by his word, that we are sanctified, are set apart. Now when you get into Acts, after the resurrection and the ascension, Peter, uh, Paul is arrested, this is towards the end of Acts, and he is appearing before Festus, who's the governor, and he talks about what he is teaching, and he says, but I am not mad. I mean, this claim that Jesus rose from the dead is not some, some uh, uh, 
figment of a lunatic's imagination. He said, but I speak the words of truth and reason. Isn't that interesting? One of the problems we've had since the rise of postmodernism and the New Age movement is how do you communicate with an unbeliever who rejects reason and logic, who basically is rejecting the meaning of language, because all language is structured on, on logic. Now, you're going to get two answers to that. One is, well, you have to approach it a different way. No, you don't. Because the Word of God is sufficient, and it's not up to you or me or how wisely or intelligently or logically or irrationally we present the gospel. It's up to the Holy Spirit. He is the member of the Trinity who's responsible for making the truth clear even when we make it muddy. I experience that at least three times a week. I make the truth muddy and God the Holy Spirit makes it clear. So what, what Paul is saying here is that we speak in terms of absolute truth and we don't give up logic in order to somehow walk over and agree with the unbeliever in how he's to make him feel comfortable in what he is saying. God the Holy Spirit is the one who's going to make things clear, and so we stick to the guns and we talk about Scripture, and we present a clear logical case, and he makes it clear. Romans 15, 8, Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for what? For the truth of God. It's, it's talking about absolute truth. It has the article there, and in this case it's pointing out to the exclusiveness of the aletheia, the Greek word, the aletheia of God. It is God's truth. It's a possessive there in the genitive. And then it's applied to Christ, same phrase, but here it's the truth of Christ as opposed to the truth of God. They're the same thing, 2 Corinthians 11.10, as the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Now we'll get to 2 Corinthians 11 a little later on. In Ephesians 4.21, Paul says, If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth, the truth is in Jesus. So Jesus embodies truth. So we stick there. So that's the point, is that Jesus is the truth. So if we are living our life, now there's a couple of different areas I pointed out before where this doctrine of sufficiency is under and has been under incredible attack uh, for m more than our lifetimes. But it's really crystallized in our lifetime. The first is in the area of creation, that we can get sufficient truth from observing fossils and geology and biology to figure out how we got here. We don't need information from God. That, the, that, that just observational science in the fields of biology and ge geology, zoology, that's enough. We can figure out where we came from. We don't need God. The second is in the category of sociology, and that really impacts the church. And I just don't have a lot of... T I, well, I do, but it's been a long time since I've studied this, and I didn't want to get off on it. But one of the things that's happening more and more today, and this has been going on since the early 70s, 
is that the rise of the church growth movement, which came out of Fuller Seminary for a large part, had a couple of other sources, but the main source came out of Fuller. It wasn't long after they had rejected inerrancy at Fuller Seminary. And so they're looking to other truths to figure out how to make church work, how to plant churches, how to grow Christians, how to make a church grow. So because of the numbers and everything else, we know that God is blessing us. And that's the root of the church growth movement. And the church growth movement is grounded in sociology. In fact, uh, almost anything you read, I would say 98.5% of what you read that relates to what makes a church successful is grounded on the assumptions of sociology, what we have learned for what makes people work well together in an organization so that the church can be healthy. My goodness, isn't that wonderful? It's too bad the Apostle Paul didn't have that when he went to Thessalonica. Maybe he wouldn't have had those problems in Corinth if he had just had sociology 101 and 102. If he had just gone to Donald McGavern or Peter Wagner's courses on church planning and church growth, we could have avoided a lot, and the millennium would have been here by now. It's just absolutely absurd that the assumption here is that if that we have new information now, and we have to master it. And so you get churches who are all caught up in Rick Warren's The Purpose Driven Church. And Bill Hybels somehow had a, had a couple of blowouts in his spiritual life, and he's no longer at Willow Creek. But Willow Creek at one time, about 15 years ago was the, in Chicago, was the largest church in the country. And I'd heard about Willow Creek here uh, from people uh, in the, back in the early 80s. And I look back, as I study this stuff now, I look back and see how I was exposed to a lot of garbage, and I really didn't know, know what, it want, what, what it was. And it's like, remember, you know, when you're a parent and you're at your kid at the mall, they're three or four years old, and they're doing, all of a sudden they see something in the window, and you just kind of reach down with your hand and put it around their eyes, say, now come on, we're going to go this way. I feel like the Lord did that to me a lot because I didn't get sucked into a lot of that. I, I looked at it a lot in the 80s. That's what we were, all were doing was, is there any value here in trying to answer that? And we just kept coming back, no, this is just sociology. Paul didn't need it. Why do we? That is what sets us apart. The churches that we associate with, the pastors that we know, are set apart because of, on that for a reason. What I find discouraging sometimes is there's a younger generation coming up now, and they may not be as secure because they in this it, because they haven't grown up fighting these battles like we did. They don't know the history of these ideas. They don't know the who's who. That's why it's important to go to go to seminary, not just listen to uh, somebody that's a good pastor like me teaching the word because I can't go into the details. I, I don't go into that on a in Bible class, but there's some really good books there, and I was amazed, probably about 10 years ago, there was a book written by Chuck Smith's brother, Paul. Chuck was the founder of the Calvary Chapel movement, out of which came, it, it had problems which gave rise to certain heretical movements, but to Chuck's credit, they, they dealt with those heretical movements, but it created a lot of problems. But I read the history of this from, from uh, Paul Smith, 
And I realized that back in the mid-70s, I was exposed to all these different people and their teaching. And I didn't have any idea what this, what this web was. Later, it becomes identified as neo-evangelicalism, and it's out of that that you get the Rick Warrens and the church growth and all this other stuff. But we'll get, may get into some of this when we start talking about the false teachers, because this is so prevalent today. And it dominates almost any ch- big church or pastor that you can think of is reading in this, and it's, they've compromised in this area of sociology. And then we have psychology, and I've talked a lot about that in the previous lessons. Psychology is the same idea. We have new truth from psychology, from Freud, from uh, Maslow, from Jung, from, from a lot of these other psychologists. We have all these psychotherapies. We've learned good stuff. Yeah, so what you're saying is that the Apostle Paul would have really been a better apostle if he had just had access to this. That's really what they're saying. They're saying that uh, I solved these problems in my life that are spiritual problems ultimately rooted in sin. I solved these problems because uh, I went to psychotherapy, and, and that changed me. The Bible didn't. It's really sad. Now, we either believe Jesus is the truth or we don't. We either believe the Bible is sufficient or we don't. We either believe grace is sufficient or we don't. And if we don't, we are not a biblical Christian. We are living on a lie. We're not trying to do it God's way. We're trying to do sort of a halfway job about it. Now, the eighth point is that how, how, however, the human race since the time of the fall has set itself against the truth. The basic general orientation of every human being coming out of the womb because of his sin nature and because he's spiritual dead is against the truth. He's suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. That's Romans 1.18. And he's rejected the general revelation of God, and he is suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And one result of that in verse 25 is they have exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. You want to know why the left hates Christianity is because we're those retrograde backwoods uh, deplorables who believe that there's things that are right or they're wrong and there's no gray area. That's why they hate us because they want the gray area so they can mess around with their sin in the gray area. But the Bible says you either have the truth of God or you exchange it for a lie and you're self-deceived in, in arrogance. And you're worshiping something. Everybody's worshiped something. You're either going to worship yourself or you're going to worship some other aspect of the culture. Are you going to be like the folks up at Columbia, no, up, up at Union Seminary in New York? Did you all read about that this last week? Confessing to the plants. Pure idolatry, worshiping the creature, worshiping created things, pure idolatry. But it shouldn't be a surprise. Union Seminary went liberal in the 1880s. That means they rejected the authority of God's word, and they've been circling the drain ever since. And now they're there. So under point eight, I didn't get that numbered right. I got interrupted or something. Uh, that should be point nine. There are different kinds of truth. Truth revealed by God, which is absolute and universal, 
and truth that is discovered through the reasoning and observations of limited, finite humans. I don't care if you have an IQ like Albert Einstein squared. It's still finite. It's not even close to the wisdom and omniscience of God. And so they take their observations, the conclusions from their observations, and they think that gives them absolute truth. They've made themselves a little God. They're competing with God. They are making themselves as a creature something to be worshipped. So the way this comes across, the way it's talked about sort of in history, another way of looking at this is you have two books that God uses to reveal himself to us. The book on the right is called General Revelation. General Revelation is nonverbal. General Revelation is what you find in Romans 1.17 that you go out, you look at the heavens, and they display the, the power, the majesty, the greatness of God. They, you see who God is uh, from what he, what he produced. You go to Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. What that means, how, do, how, how we understand the glory of God, how have we come to understand that in those phrases? That is a way of speaking of the essence of God. All of who God is is demonstrated, and that shows how significant and important God is. The heavens announce how important, how central God is, and they announce to us all the facets of his essence, his power, his wisdom, his skill, his righteousness, his justice. It's all perfect. The heavens declare that, but it's not spoken. General revelation does not give specificity. It just gives general information. So we can learn things through the use of empiricism, rationalism, and and mysticism when we're looking at the heavens, but it can't come to absolute truth. So in the final analysis, this is just a human interpretation and, but human interpretation becomes the final authority. But special revelation gives us specificity. God speaks through and to man. And he does it in a, giving objective information. The best example is Adam could observe a lot of things about the animals and about the trees in the garden. But God had to tell him that if he ate from one of them, he would die. If it weren't for special revelation, he would not properly be able to interpret everything else. He could get close to a lot of things. He could observe a lot of things about the different kinds of bark on different trees and different kind of leaves. But the really important thing wasn't that it was coniferous or deciduous. The really important thing wasn't that it was uh, a, a bush that would produce a fruit or something else that would produce a berry, but that if he ate from that one in the center, he was going to die spiritually. That was the important thing. And that gave a di- different dimension to his interpretation of everything else. 
So God has to speak to give those significant pieces of information to us that are important to understand. God's the ultimate authority. Now, that means that special revelation always has to interpret general revelation. We can look to the ant in Proverbs, but not for everything. We have to have special revelation to look to, to find out what to look to the ant for. You can look to the ant to gain an analogy for the importance of saving and working steadily every single day to save up and have a stockpile of food. But you don't look to the ant for lessons about marriage because you have one queen and, and, and a lot of workers. That's not going to help you any with marriage. Special revelation has to interpret how we understand and apply general revelation. So if special revelation is the word of God and the observations from sociology or biology or psychology are, are, are present, special revelation tells us how to interpret the data in those fields. You have a fossil well, a fossil, the only thing a fossil tells you is there once was something living and this is what's left behind is evidence that there was once something living. It doesn't have a little sign on it that says, my birth date was on March the 5th, 250,000 B.C. or 4,000 B.C. It doesn't have any sign like that. So you have to bring additional information, a hermeneutical framework to it to interpret it, to understand what, what it is, where it came from, and its significance within the overall flow of things. But because we have special revelation, we know when that was created. And we know what created and the, the fossil was the flood of Noah, which was about 3,000 B.C., 2800 B.C., somewhere in there. So that's, that's how these two books of Revelation work. So the truth over here in general Revelation is not analogous to the truth of special Revelation. This is just another way uh, of looking at that. And let me tell you, if you are a parent or a grandparent and you have kids, you need to be explaining this to them early on. I'm a firm believer that you need to talk about this to them when they're in diapers and continuously after that, they're not going to get it when they're in diapers, but what you're doing by audibly talking to them about everything is that you're helping that brain to form all the connections it needs in terms of the biology and the chemistry, and you're, as it were, formatting them so that once they get the vocabulary and once they uh, get to a point where you can have teaching moments with them, you have pre-formatted them for the truth. You wait till they're three or four in this culture, in this age, you're a child abuser. That's harsh, but you are. You're waiting way too late. Don't let their brain get formatted that much by the world system around them and their sin nature. Start interacting and acting against that as soon as they're out of the womb. The music you play, the things that are around them, the environment you create, all of that plays a role. And you won't know, and you may never know till you get to heaven, 
the impact it has had, the difference between violating the law of gravity and a law of divine institution is that you instantly know you made a mistake when you violated the law of gravity. But if you violate the law of parenting under the third divine institution, you may not find out until 18 or 19 or 20 years later. That's when it's going to bear the fruit. So you have to start right away. Okay, Ephesians 1.13, which we've already studied in Ephesians on Sunday morning. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So truth in the Bible is very significant. It is also related to knowledge. Faith is knowledge. In, the, in human viewpoint, it is empiricism versus faith. It's rationalism versus faith. It's reason and logic versus faith. Faith in, the, in human viewpoint is just mysticism. It's, it's a leap of faith. That's Kierkegaardian existentialism. You may not know what that is, but I hear people talk about biblical faith as a leap of faith, and that's blasphemy. Because a leap of faith is that you're going to believe it in spite of evidence. You're going to believe it without evidence. That's irrationalism. God has given us evidence. He has given us, as Jesus said to the apostles in Acts 1-8, many convi- in Acts 1-4, many convincing proofs. He, he appeals to the mind. Okay, so we got the basis of knowledge. Chart we're familiar with many times. This across the top we have the three categories: the name of the system, the starting point for the system, and the methodology of the system in three columns. The first system is rationalism. The starting point is reason. It, it's what's in your mind. In, in rationalism, there's nothing already in your mind. It's not preformatted. Or, or, excuse me, I've got, uh, uh, erase that. In, in, in rationalism, it starts with certain innate ideas. They're embedded within your thinking. And so you start off and you start using logic to work your way out from your existence to the existence of God. It never worked. Nobody came up with a system that would work, but it's based on using logic and reason. And it's ultimately based on, as I point out here, faith in human ability. In empiricism, it's based on sense perceptions. The mind is, is what I was saying a minute ago, the mind is, is erased. There's nothing there, but it gets formatted from all of these impressions, everything that comes in through what you see, what you hear, what you taste, what you touch. It's that external experience that you have faith in your human ability to properly interpret that. It also uses logic and reason, and together rationalism and empiricism form what we usually refer to as a scientific method. Mysticism comes into play because eventually rationalism and empiricism go bankrupt. They can't answer the question, is there a God, is there meaning to life, why are we here, rationalism and empiricism can't answer that question. So what do you do? Well, we, we can't live as if life is meaningless. So we have to assume there's, there's meaning. And You know, how many times do you hear people say, well, this is what the universe wants me to do. I just want to shake people. 
What do you mean the universe is impersonal? It's just matter and energy. It can't will. It has no volition. It has no thought. It has no purpose. It's inanimate. And you're treating it like it's a personal being because you've rejected God. But they have to, even though they've rejected God, they have to have something that, that fills that vacuum. And so it's mysticism. It's based on some sort of inner private experience, just what they want, because that's the only thing that's going to make it work. And so, again, it's faith in human ability. But they've rejected reason. And then we have the biblical position, which is revelation, that God has objectively spoken and disclosed and revealed information to people, and we either trust it or we don't. We either believe it or we don't. And it's based on a dependent use of logic and reason. God tells us how to use logic and reason. We're not using it. When you use logic and reason independently, then you start judging the Bible and saying, well, I've never seen a miracle like that, so how could Jesus heal a leper? I've never seen anybody heal a blind man, so how could that happen? And this idea that Jesus was walking on the water or the children of Israel escaped through the Red Sea, there was a sandbar there. And that's how it happened. See, that's using independent reason and logic to judge, judge the Scripture. Revelation is dependent. We start with the Scripture assuming it's true. Now, I want to look at, before we get to this slide, I want to look at some examples. We have time for one. We'll come back to the others next week. I want us to understand how people in the Bible saw and experienced the sufficient grace of God and the sufficiency of God's revelation. And we're going to start with Noah. Now, this is a picture of the ark up there at, uh, at the Answers in Genesis Creation Museum. We have got a couple of ladies in the church who are up there this week, and one of them sent this picture to me this morning, not knowing that I could use it tonight. But I thought that was such a great picture because see how little those people are? And look at the ones that are entering the ark, that are right there by the entryway. See how small they are compared to the size of this ark. And this ark is built according to the dimensions that are given in the Scripture. So it shows you how much room there was in the ark, the capacity of the ark. And there were only eight people on the ark. And so here you have about, I don't know, maybe 15 people, uh, most 20, standing there. And, you know, they're dwarfed by the size of the ark. They could have put 40 people in there and still had room for all the animals. So this, this is the ark. Now think about what happens with, with Noah. First of all, we have to understand what the problem was that Noah felt. And this problem isn't any different from the problem you face and I face. We wake up every single day, and if you get up in the morning and you turn on the news or you turn on your iPhone or your iPad or your computer or whatever and you read the news, you are confronted with the evil that is in this world. And that the liberals in this world say evil doesn't exist. But we look at it and we go, this is evil. See, you've immediately interpreted the facts differently from them. There was, the first big problem was that at the time of Noah, evil had expanded exponentially throughout, throughout the world. 
So that in Genesis 6, 5, we read, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Look at those words, great. It couldn't be any bigger. That is an expansive term in, in the Hebrew. It was enormous. This is a major problem. The, magne- the wickedness of man was, was expanded throughout all of the earth and was at its fullest operational extent. And every intent, not most of their intents, but everything. They're spiritually dead, so they're driven by the lust of the sin nature. Therefore, every intent of their heart is evil, and it's evil continually. It was really bad. You think it's bad here? You look at what's going on in the world today. This is nothing, folks. We're living in a paradise compared to what Noah was living in. You want to complain about the fact that you've got problems with your people you work with? You've got problems with the uh, morals of the people in your culture? You've got problems with uh, how your parents raised you and whatever they did to you that may have been quite horrible? This was Noah's world. It was that way everywhere all the time. It was beyond anything that we can imagine. You can think of Sodom and Gomorrah, and it was like that all over the world, everybody except for eight people. How do you think they felt? What do you think their emotions were when they're out there interacting with all of this wickedness? It was pretty pretty sad. It was miserable. Life was not, in those circumstances, life did not feel good. Then there's a demonic invasion that occurs. And we're told that the sons of God, and those are some of the demons, the sons of God took on, they were able to transform their immaterial bodies into material bodies and to come down and seduce human women and marry them. So this is what's going on, that you've got these demons coming in, They're mighty men. They're more brilliant than anybody. They could make themselves more attractive than anybody. And they're running off with all of the good-looking women. And they're having children that are even more impressive. This is, and, and they were doing this continually. Now, I want to make a little side point here. Because I didn't think about this and run into this until after I taught on Matthew 24 a few years ago. But in Matthew 24, there's a passage there that talks about uh, in the days of Noah, men, uh, people are marrying and giving in marriage. And everybody interprets that as, well, that's pretty normal. So that's got to be talking about the rapture because people wouldn't be living that kind of a normal experience right up to the time of the second coming because the whole world is going to be falling apart Uh, with the campaign of Armageddon and all the three cycles of judgments that are taking place in uh, in the tribulation. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 38, for is in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. That's not normal eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Because when you look at Genesis 6, uh, 5, 
I mean, 6, 4, and 5, you realize it was an evil, wicked, perverse marriage. It was homosexual marriage. It was angelic to human marriage. It was all kinds of evil. And they were just partying on, on drugs and hallucinogens, and they were having one huge orgy on the planet. That's what's described in Genesis 6. They were having an orgy on the planet, and they were oblivious to the warnings that God was coming. That is not talking about the rapture. That's talking about the second coming. So we have the problem that every human being is living out their sin nature to the grossest level that they can, and the whole environment is just messed up. You've got this demonic... Uh, invasion that's that's coming along, and so Noah has to deal with this. Now Noah was 480 years old when God warns him about about the flood. We know that at the end of chapter four it talks about Noah is 500 years old, and Noah is. Um, Noah's 500 years old. And he gives birth to three sons: Ham, Shem, and Japheth. That's after he's 500. But when the flood comes, he's 600. And God gave them 120 days of grace. So that means you subtract 120 from 600, and you, most days I can come up with 480. That's how old Noah was. And think about this guy. He's not any different from you and me. He's thinking about, well, I've got another 300 years till I retire Let's figure out how much more money I need to save so that I can have a smooth retirement. I want to do this with my life. I've got 300 years left of work. What can I accomplish in 300 years? I can probably go around the world two or three times. I can see all kinds of things. I want to travel. I want to enjoy my life. I have plans. I've got kids. I want to have a lot of fun with my kids and my great-great-great-great-great-grandkids. And we're going to have one heck of a family reunion at Christmas with about 300 people. This is going to be great. He's got all those same desires and hopes and dreams that anybody else would have. And God came along and said, I'm going to destroy everything. Not only am I destroying everything, but you'll never get any of it back. I'm going to wipe out every single thing that you are familiar with, and when you come back after the flood, it's going to be, you you can't recover anything that you've lost. You're going to have to rebuild from scratch. All of the comforts that you have, whatever technology you have that you enjoy that makes life comfortable for you, all of that is going to be gone because the new world is going to be is going to be absent of all of these things, and you're going to have to start over from scratch. You're going to be working to the end of your days. Your 401K is going to be wiped out. You know Everything that you've saved for the future is going to be wiped out. How would you respond to that? That's not pleasant. But what we learn about this is that Noah had a relationship with the Lord. See, in Genesis 6, 8, we've learned, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And in Hebrews eleven seven, by faith, 
Noah being divinely warned, that's divine revelation. Was God's revelation sufficient for Noah? It, it, it certainly was. Just imagine what Noah's facing in this climate. He's being told by God that this is going to happen, that he's going to have to evangelize uh, for the next 120 years. So he's going to face incredible hostility. He's going to cr create, you know, there, there's going to be, he's going to be taunted. He's going to be made fun of. He's going to say it's going to rain, and they don't even know what that is. Water's going to fall from heaven. They've never seen anything like that before. That everything is going to be, uh, everything is going to be destroyed. They've never, he's never seen anything like that before. So, so he's ridiculed. See, a lot of people have problems because they are not respected, or they're made fun of because they're a Christian, or for some other reason in their life that they're made up. How could it be worse than what Noah's going through? It can be. I'm convinced of that. But th that's, that's in the top 1%. But God's grace was sufficient for that. He didn't need to go, man, I'm just, nobody likes me. Nobody responds to me. I can't have any success. Now, usually we say he didn't have a con single convert. We don't know that. He could have had a lot of deathbed converts. He could have had a lot of people who were saved in the first year that he was uh, carrying out his evangelism crusades, and they were 810 years old, and by the time he got to the end of the 120 years, they're, they're dead. So he could have had a few converts. That's possible. They probably didn't have any. But my point is that, that he's operating in a totally hostile environment, but God's grace is sufficient for him. And he's in a situation where, where he's going to be facing the, losing everything materially that has been important to him, everything that has made his life work, everything that has given him comfort, but yet God strengthened him. We read in verse 7 of Hebrews 11, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, so he's warned of God, and he fears the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom. He did what God said to do. God told him what was going to happen. God told him what the solution was going to be, how to build the ark, what to construct it with, how to construct it, how, to, uh, how long it was going to last, everything that they should do. And then when everybody got in there, he told them to take all the animals, and then he brought the animals to him. God took care of everything. So that when once all the animals and Noah and his family were inside the ark, God closed the door and sealed it up tight, and that was their, that was their rescue boat, and that was their salvation. And they floated, and all kinds of havoc. If you've seen any of those videos that are out there on a creationist view of the of the of the uh, tectonic plate shifts and everything that are going on, producing the super tsunamis and uh, the continental drift and everything that was taking place under the water. God put all that water on the earth and it was a cushion and the lifeboat floated on top and preserved those eight people. God's grace was sufficient. Did Noah's life turn out the way he had hoped and dreamed he had wanted it to be for 475 years? No. But when he learned that God had a different plan he found out that God's grace was really sufficient, and he provided everything. Our problem is we don't adjust to God's plan very easily when it turns out to be quite a bit different from what we anticipated. 
But we have to learn to trust God and his grace because it's sufficient. So we'll come back and look next week at our next example of the sufficiency of God. We're going to look at Moses. Okay, so we'll find out how God's grace is sufficient for Moses. Father, thank you for this opportunity to go through these things, to be challenged with the, the exclusive claims of your word, that we are to trust you in a, a way that is more radical than, than most of us have ever experienced or seen and that is rarely talked about from church pulpits, that, that you are the God who controls everything. And when things don't go the way we want them to, do, to go, whether it involves some minor fender bender or major accident or a, the bottom drops out of the stock market or whatever it can be, uh, we face a, a divorce or we face rebellious kids, all kinds of problems. Your grace is always sufficient that there have been hundreds of thousands, millions of believers from the Old Testament period to today that have had nothing else to trust in. They didn't have psychology or sociology or a 401k plan or any of the things that we also trust. They only had you. And we need to learn to trust and walk with you because that's how it's supposed to be. That's when we're going to truly experience the richness of our spiritual life. And we pray that we come to understand that in Christ's name. Amen.